Welcome back. I'm your host, Julia Menezes, and you are listening to The Art of Change, an educational podcast devoted to understanding how change happens at individual, systems, and organizational levels. This podcast has been developed by the Office of Community Engagement at McMaster University. If you are a student listening to this podcast as part of the Art of Change course, welcome to week seven. In today's episode, we'll be thinking about policy change, asking questions like, how do government leaders set policy targets and ensure that these targets are met? How does intergovernmental collaboration factor into federal policymaking? And how are communication, conversation, and media implicated in policy processes? To investigate these questions, we're focusing on the topic of climate change. Specifically, policies and programs focused on mitigating greenhouse gas emissions across Canada. We're beginning our conversation with a focus on federal climate policy, as we speak with Catherine McKenna, Canada's former Minister of the Environment and Climate Change. Then, we'll shift our focus to the role of municipalities in climate policymaking, as we speak with Carol Saab, who is CEO of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. As we begin this episode, Catherine introduces herself and tells us more about how Canada's first climate action plan was developed. I'm Catherine McKenna, private citizen. I used to be the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, first Minister uh, of Environment and Climate Change, and uh, Minister of Infrastructure and Communities. I'm originally from Hamilton, from the Hammer or Steeltown, and just excited uh, to be joining this chat. Catherine assumed the role of Minister of Environment and Climate Change in 2015 and quickly became involved in talks surrounding the Paris Agreement, an international treaty on climate change that was adopted at COP21, a UN conference hosted in Paris in 2015. I went directly to Paris for uh, the negotiations on the Paris Agreement, which was really important. We can't underestimate how critical that was because every country agreed that we need to stay low two degrees, striving for 1.5, and every country had to do their part. So then we had to come home and do our part. And so I was tasked by the prime minister with negotiating a climate plan across Canada, which include a whole range of measures, um, including a price on pollution, which was by far the hardest piece. So my role at cabinet was basically laying out the pieces of our plan and getting buy-in. You're the minister of environment and climate change. You're only one portfolio. So you have to be working with other ministers, minister of transportation, minister of natural resources, minister of indigenous services, because a lot of these opportunities are with Indigenous peoples, whether it's getting Indigenous communities off diesels, making critical investment, clean infrastructure, protecting more nature. So it was a cross-the-board approach, which is very challenging. And, uh, you know, you have to bring colleagues on side. And uh, at the same time, we had to negotiate with provinces. It's a shared jurisdiction. So the provinces had a lot to say about, you know, what they thought the path forward was. But my goal was very clear. We needed to meet our target and have real policies in place that were going to make a very big difference. The federal climate plan that Catherine was tasked with negotiating was launched in 2016 as Canada's first national climate plan, or the Pan-Canadian Framework on Clean Growth and Climate Change. 
Simply stated, the plan set out over 50 specific measures to ensure that Canada met the targets set out in the Paris Agreement to reduce emissions. It's one thing to have a target because there's always a lot of focus on the target, but the reality is you need to have a plan. So Canada has had many targets, which has failed to meet. And for the first time ever, we have a plan. And the reality is you have to keep on iterating. You have to keep on increasing ambition as you uh, make progress on your plan. And these are plans that, you know, they aren't about tomorrow, although you need to start doing all your action now. Like we're talking about, for example, target uh, in 2030, uh, reducing emissions by 40%. That's the latest target. So I guess we're kind of in the third iteration of the plan. The current iteration of Canada's Climate Action Plan is called A Healthy Environment and Healthy Economy and was released in December of 2020. Building on the work of the Pan-Canadian Framework from 2016, the new climate plan sets out over 64 modified and new federal policy recommendations, with references to the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and new approaches to emissions reductions. These targets and the actions you take, they don't come out of nowhere. Basically, what you do is you just have to think of where your emissions come from. So in Canada, our emissions come from sectors that people would recognize. So clearly from the transportation sector, you have emissions from the built environment, so buildings, houses. You have emissions from industry, um, and in our case, oil and gas is obviously a huge source of emissions for Canada. You have emissions from waste, you have emissions from all these areas. And then basically you have to go through and figure out what are the tools you have to reduce emissions in those sectors? So it can be everything from a price on pollution, which targets action across the board. It creates an incentive to, for people to save money by polluting less, but also regulatory measures. So we decided we're phasing out coal by 2030. You bring in regulation and then there's investments. So making investments, for example, in clean infrastructure. So that's what we've been focused on, and you just have to continuously do better. That's part of the Paris Agreement process. Every five years, you need to improve, and you need to track. That's extremely important. So Canada tracks transparently how we're doing every year, and then how we're doing with projections into the future with the action we're taking. Regulatory measures and tools like a price on pollution can make the policy process sound straightforward. But as Catherine explains, there are challenges with staying focused on a clear target while working within a constantly changing political environment. I mean, I think the, the most important thing is to just not get bogged down in details in a way. Obviously, all of these pieces are details, but you have to deliver on a plan. And so that just means you have to make sure that you're just focused on emission reductions and figuring out both for the politics and also the policy to get you there. And I just, you know, every day I just worked really hard to reduce emissions. That's all I did. I would look at a chart, see the emissions by sector. You knew what you needed to do. Every day you get focused. And it's easy to get distracted in politics because there's a lot of politics in politics. But if you actually just say, like, we got to do it and we're just going to move forward um, and look at new opportunities, that's how you make progress. You're always going to have opposition to hard things. Hard things are hard. And I think you got to go big, especially when it comes to climate change and you're going to get the opposition. You might as well do it on things that really matter. But, you know, it takes time because you do have to negotiate. We did sit down with provinces and territories uh, and negotiate with them in partnership with Indigenous peoples. We did have to do consultation with industry. And each of these pieces is separate, right? So if you're doing a coal phase out, that's very different from investments 
in electric vehicles. So you have to develop that policy separately. So, you know, there's a whole range of different things that are going on within government between the political folks, so ministers and their staff, and uh, the public service. But in our case, we negotiated for the better part of the year. Um, we announced our climate plan with provinces and territories in December uh, of 2016. But then the hard work continues because you have to implement the pieces and then you have to think about how do you increase ambition. So it's a long process, but you just have to do it. And I'm someone who is very impatient. So I just try to, as much as possible, blow through obstacles, but you're going to run into particular policy challenges and political challenges that you'll have to deal with. Even after the initial climate plan was released in December of 2016, consultations continued. These included formal consultation processes with provincial ministers, but also consultations with individual municipalities, industry leaders, indigenous communities, and representative bodies like the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. We did have lots of consultations. When you do policy, there's a process you have to follow, a regulatory process with formal consultations. But, I mean, you are doing consultations all the time on different pieces. But you're never going to get consensus. <laughs> like, we just have to be, keep it real here. Like, it is hard. And, you know, I would get hit by all sides. I would have environmentalists wanting us and sometimes regular people, like, do more right now. And on the flip side, you would have industry and even just people who are worried about their jobs, right? If you were in coal and we're phasing out coal, you're phasing out people's jobs. You were very concerned and so had a very different perspective. So I think what you have to try to do is also bridge the gulf there and be practical. And actually, I got some good advice by former Prime Minister Kretschmer. He said to me, Canadians are reasonable, be reasonable. I think when he said it, he probably thought we weren't being reasonable, but it was actually really good advice because I think at the end of the day, you're going to have to make a call. Being a minister is hard. Every file that ends up on your desk is, in my definition, a hard file. If it wasn't a hard file, it wouldn't be sitting on your desk. So you got to figure out ways to get solutions to your best, but you got to drive ahead. And, the, and it, as I said, like in a way, there was a clear goal. We had to reduce our emissions and meet a target. And we had to do that as much for Canada's global reputation because we said, we went to the Paris Agreement, I said that Canada's here to do our part. We believe in the science. We all need to be ambitious. So we had to deliver on that or else our credibility internationally would have been shot. And the whole Paris Agreement relies on every country doing its part. If suddenly everyone is like, well, too hard here, the consensus starts to erode. I mean, were there fiery discussions? <laughs> yes. I was at negotiations where people, they stormed off. They left the table, went straight to the microphones and started slamming me, probably personally, but also what we were doing. I don't know. You just have to work to get as much of a consensus to recognize real issues, to talk like a real person. Because I think at the end of the day, you got to communicate. People have to understand very complex issues in real ways. Um, and they just got to move forward. Communicating clearly about complex issues requires understanding from a systems level how the change that you want to advance is implicated in other social, economic, and political challenges. You need to drive the change you want. You need to be working, though, to understand what are the challenges, like in certain industries, cement. We need cement. It's very polluting. So when you design a system, you want to create the incentives for them to reduce the, the amount they're polluting, but you don't want to drive all Canadian businesses out of the country. So you do have to be thoughtful about how you do things. 
But at the end of the day, you're the government. So you need to make decisions and regulating is part of it. You can't just hope that everyone's going to change the behavior. So you do have to move forward and you're going to make calls that people won't be happy with. We turned down major developments, major projects. We were, you know, some industry, some folks weren't happy. I don't know. You do it based on the science, the evidence, and the end, what you think is right. And then, you know, there's an election. One of the most challenging policies that Catherine worked on as Minister of the Environment and Climate Change was the price on pollution. A policy that was implemented across Canada in 2019 to recognize the cost of pollution in monetary terms. This cost shows up as a fuel charge on fossil fuels, like gasoline, for example but also as a pricing system on polluting industries. The proceeds from this pricing then go towards climate action incentive payments, which are given to Canadians through annual tax returns. The idea is you want to create an incentive for people to save more money. So if you got an electric vehicle, you decided to take public transportation, decided to take other things that were less polluting, you would save money. But we actually then had to work on the comms because if you say carbon tax, which it is not, it's not a carbon tax. It was found by the Supreme Court that it was, that it was a federal plan was not a carbon tax because because we give the money back. But you have to figure out how do you communicate it. So we started it off. I mean, started in carbon tax, but we said like a price on carbon, and then well, carbon pricing, price on carbon, and then we got to a price on pollution because I would say you want to make sure everyone can understand it. So if I said to a class of grade fours, you think that it should be free to pollute? They'd say no, and I said that's why we have a price on pollution, and it's. In a way, it is very hard often for policymakers, for environmentalists, for folks that are in the, the midst of things to actually be able to talk like a real person so that people can understand you and have trust. The price on pollution faced strong opposition from several groups across Canada, including provincial governments in Alberta, Ontario, and Saskatchewan. As a result, Catherine focused her work on clearly communicating the goals of the policy and combating misinformation. You just have to keep on communicating. You have to be out there. We used local members of parliament. We had doctors. We had young people. We had environmentalists. We had business leaders who talked about how important it was to put a price on pollution to drive the change and the innovation. You just have to use a whole bunch of tools. But, you know, government isn't amazing in communicating. I think progress was made, but it's very hard. Because there's a lot of noise and a lot of misinformation, but I think in a way I actually had to push back. I had to be quite vocal. I felt like I was taking body blows, but it was really important to be out there and to correct the facts. And I tried to do it as much as I could. And I, I think also people who don't like it, it became quite personal about me. And I mean, I don't think Canadians like that. It's not their thing. It wasn't my thing either. And so I think that going after me personally was not... I think it was a super great strategy, but I bet, you know, people still get misinformation about it. When there are changes at other levels of government, for example, when a new provincial government with different priorities is elected, policies can sometimes be rendered obsolete. In this respect, combating misinformation becomes important to ensure public buy-in and create policies that last in the long term. The only way policies are resilient at the end of the day is if Canadians believe in them. It's very, very hard to put things in stone. And we saw that with the Ford government. They came in, they got rid of the cap and trade system. This was a system that had been so much work to put into it. Businesses have bought into it. They were already working. It was with California. 
just ripped it up. So, I mean, what a waste because like people put a lot of time in it. And it also was a system that was working, but that is what happened. And so that is a perennial problem on policy generally, but on climate policy. But I think now, I just think there has been a change. I've seen a sea change since 2015 where governments cannot get elected unless they have a serious climate plan. And I think that's because we're seeing the impacts of climate change. And I think it's also young people have been in the streets. So, you know, their parents and grandparents are hearing directly from kids, from young people who are saying, this is our, my future. You don't get to ruin my future. You need to take action. So I think those are the things that matter. I mean, you try to make resilient policy, but people can change it. I think the most important thing is actually, you know, working with Canadians so they feel invested in the actions you're taking and you're actually taking actions that they care about and that they can participate in. So when you're doing things, hopefully they do see benefits. They may not see always the direct benefits, but at least on pieces of it, like protecting more nature or building public transit or having incentives to retrofit your homes or an electric vehicle subsidy that people actually can benefit and feel part of it. But it is always a risk. That's democracy. Ensuring that individual actors are invested in policy changes can take many different forms. From a policy lens, investment might look like accessing home retrofit benefits. But it can also mean taking everyday actions to address climate change, like taking public transit, for example, or engaging in letter writing campaigns. There are obviously things you can do in your own life, um, whether it's taking public transit or you can advocate, you can march in the streets, you can do letter writing campaigns. So I think that there are things that people can do in their day-to-day life, but the reality is true. Government plays a very significant role. But I think also when people say to me, well, who cares if people don't use straws? I said, but if they're not using a straw, it's because they've actually thought about it. They've actually decided that they're going to take action themselves and that they're then invested in the broader piece. While that straw is not going to save the planet, It's everyone actually being thoughtful about the future they want and eliminating the behaviors or the activities that we know are having a negative impact, small, but also big. And that is how you get transformational change. So I'm working on an initiative, Women Leading on Climate. People are like, well, that's nice. Like we need to get the, you know, countries off coal. Yeah, totally. I'm working on getting countries off coal. But transformational change, it's not always as direct as you can see. Like women are actually, I think, leading the climate revolution, but often don't have the support or the tools or their voices aren't amplified. Like negotiators in in the international negotiations, too few of the lead negotiators are women. And I think that would make a huge difference. So I think transformational change you do in many different ways. It's messy. It's not a linear process. There's no magic wand. You have to do high-low. You have to convince people while you have to take leadership. And then you got to do this at a global scale because, of course, it's not just Canada. It's it's globally. Since the Paris Agreement in 2015, Canada's federal government has reported progress on climate policies annually. The challenge for policymakers then becomes assessing whether these policies are actually meeting the targets. We have to report on our emissions every year, which can be quite frustrating because a lot of the policies you bring in place, if you're phasing out coal by 2030, you're not maybe not going to see big reductions in emissions right away. But we report our emissions and you will do your projections based on the policies in place. But then you do need to test the policies. Are they working? Did you design something properly that created the right incentives? I think one of the big challenges for government 
is understanding behavioral changes. Why would someone change their behavior? And I'll just take a very easy example. Electric vehicles. Well, they're more expensive still. So having a subsidy actually matters, unfortunately. Our government got rid of the subsidy in Ontario, but there's still a federal subsidy. So that makes a difference. But actually, if you look at Norway's experience, it's also other behavioral signals. So you were allowed to drive in the fast lane if you had an electric vehicle. Well, for a lot of people, if you think of the greater Toronto area, if you get to pass everyone while everyone's you know, sitting in gridlock, that might be a really good incentive for you. So I think you just need to make sure the policy, you can try to design a policy, but are you getting the outcome you want? And in this case, it's the emission reductions, right? Like that's really what it is. We're trying to drive emission reductions. Could be other outcomes, like you want uptake of X number of people to have retrofitted their homes. But that's why when you have policy, you need to have very clear outcomes and you have to track them. And government is not necessarily as amazing as that. And when I was infrastructure minister, my measure of success wasn't, did we spend the money? Of course, like if you're saying you're going to do investments, did you spend the money? But are you actually getting outcomes? And in my case, it was reductions in emissions. It was also jobs and it was also tackling inequality fostering inclusivity. Those were really important and everything had to be focused on getting multiple outcomes for every dollar we spent. But it's not an easy thing because you can do the best in designing policies and you realize actually it's not really working. And then you go back to the drawing board. Even when policies are working, contradictions within government roles can mean that ministries like natural resources have goals that don't align with the goals of a ministry like environment and climate change. As Catherine explains, this is why common goals across ministries are so important. You have to have a common goal. You have to at the highest level. And that wasn't the case when we came in and it is a constant work in progress because if you're the Minister of Environment and Climate Change and your goal is reducing emissions, and then you're going on the natural resources side and doing a whole range of things, raising emissions, you got a problem. And that was a big challenge. But at the highest level, the prime minister said, we need to be net zero by 2050. Climate action has to drive all our action. We're looking through the cabinet process. When you make decisions, how do you make sure you evaluate everything that comes in front of cabinet ministers from a climate lens? So you do have to have very clear goals because you cannot have different departments of loggerheads. And traditionally, that was the case that a minister of environment and minister of natural resources, put aside the ministers, ministries, they would have real challenges. But I don't think we have time for that. And I think now people understand, like for me, the thing is climate change. And climate action can deliver jobs and economic opportunity. You have to be smart about it. And so that's why I think you need everyone working, really driving together. You need the minister of innovation to be investing in clean technologies. So I think that, that it really, it's leadership at the top. Um, that's the top of the public service. That's the top of the political food chain, which is prime minister. And it's having, you know, clear goals. We have to be net zero by 2050. So we have to reorient everything we're doing. And we have to see that as an economic opportunity. So it has to be framed in a positive way, not like it's a negative drag that we have to act on climate, but we, ha we have to do that because there's the jobs, the, the countries that are going to be the most successful are the ones that are the cleanest, that have the clean solutions. We also have to see the huge risks we have by not acting in particular to adapt to climate change because we're seeing impacts across the country. And we need to, to be doing that. So I think at the highest level, that's what has to happen. I mean, I think more broadly, you're just seeing a, a shift, a real shift 
by businesses, by individuals towards finding climate solutions, but we need to be way faster. We need to be way faster. I do worry about 2050. It just seems so far away that we need to be thinking about 2030. Uh, We need to be thinking about what we're doing every single year because how much adapting to climate change we do will depend on what scenario we end up and how much we reduce emissions by and how much the planet warms. So, I mean, I'm an optimist on this because I do think we Canadians understand it, but the challenge is actually doing the hard work. Doing the hard work of reducing emissions requires collaboration across all levels of government. But many municipalities across Canada don't have the capacity or political resources to be in constant communication with the federal government. To combat this challenge, municipalities are often represented by advocating groups, like the Federation for Canadian Municipalities, or FCM. In the next few minutes, we're speaking with FCM CEO Carol Saab as we learn about climate policy from a municipal lens. I'm Carol Saab. I'm the CEO of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. I'm in uh, year one and a half uh, in that role, but I've been with FCM now for um, over 10 years. So have a, a long history with the organization and our work across our files, including to climate change. FCM is a member-based association made up of over 2,000 municipalities across Canada. From small rural communities to Canada's largest cities, FCM represents over 93% of Canada's population. As you can imagine, the issues that we work on are quite broad in terms of scope, but also there are a lot of issues that impact communities and cities of all sizes, a different scale, of course. Climate change is a very good example in all the same in important and significant ways. And so our job as an organization is to do a number of things. One, we drive a policy and advocacy agenda for cities and communities across the country. And so we advocate on behalf of municipalities to the federal government. And we also do policy work to try to develop and advance best thinking in a number of issues that are relevant to cities and communities. And so uh, we like to say, simply put, that we're the voice of cities and communities in Canada going forward. In addition to advocating for federal policy change, FCM runs several grants and capacity building programs to help communities across Canada reach their goals. From a climate lens, their work ranges from advancing programs for small communities that are feeling the direct effects of climate change to work with big cities to reduce greenhouse gas emissions through programs like the Green Municipal Fund. On the climate side, the Green Municipal Fund is our longest standing program. It, uh, we just celebrated 20 years. It started in 2001. And now we've grown it to a $1.6 billion endowment fund. So it's quite uh, significant in scale. And through that fund, we've been able to offset over two point. As some five million tons of GHGs through a number of various streamed programs. Probably the best way to describe that is that the Green Municipal Fund provides grants as well as really low interest loans to communities across the country and cities to do sort of front edge climate work, where often it is hard to get the kind of investment necessary because of the risk involved. Um, We de-risk that kind of project and really try to to come up with really, again, innovative solutions that are being driven locally that can then be scaled across the country. Within the Green Municipal Fund, 
FCM also works on projects related to affordable housing, sustainable housing retrofits, clean energy programs, and more. Most of FCM's resources go towards engaging their members, that is, municipalities across the country, with an emphasis on balancing different perspectives. Balance is at the core of, of everything that we do. And really ensuring that when I say balance, it doesn't mean sort of pursuing a one-size-fits-all solution. What it means is ensuring that we are comprehensively representing the interests of the urban cities, as well as our rural communities, as well as mid-sized communities, northern communities, as comprehensively as we can. And I think we've been, as an organization, getting better and better at doing that. But it does involve a heavy amount of engagement with our membership and with stakeholders. And so we have several different groupings. We have the Big City Mayor's Caucus, which um, represents some of the largest cities in Canada. And they're obviously quite a central part of the organization. And we work quite closely with them on urban issues. We also have a rural forum. And so this is an opportunity for rural communities, which can be quite small in size, quite rural. Um, and remote communities to gather and, again, inform our work. Part of FCM's commitment to balance means that they have a board made up of elected officials from municipalities across Canada that help to guide their priorities. Although these perspectives are an important part of FCM's work, as Carol explains, there are also challenges from an equity lens with relying on leaders who are already elected into municipal government. Our governance reflects the diversity of those who are elected across the country. And there's work to do to make municipalities across the country as well more representative of us as an organization, more representative of the Canadian population. And so we've got some work to do on that front and have been advancing, particularly over the last, last year, some pretty important initiatives to become a more inclusive organization, a more representative organization from a diversity and equity perspective. As Carol mentioned, FCM engages with member municipalities through caucuses and committees, but they also have partnerships with provincial municipal associations, like the Association of Municipalities in Ontario, which advocates to the provincial government. A large portion of FCM's work is also done with the federal government directly to advance intergovernmental conversations about priority issues, like climate change. Part of our work on behalf of municipalities is to build relationships and partnerships with the federal government. And that's both with the ministers and ministries that are working on the files that are relevant to, to municipalities, to the members of parliament, um, but also importantly to the public service and to public servants that are, are doing a lot of the policy development work that happens as well. And so we have an in-house team that does our policy and advocacy work and along with myself are very engaged in real-time, frequent conversations with the federal government, either with ministers, with their staff, with deputy ministers or their teams, or with members of parliament on the various um, issues. And so on climate, we have active conversations with the Minister of Climate Change, with natural resources um, and energy. And of course, you know, these things are intersected. And so infrastructure has a big plank. Housing has a big um, stake from a climate perspective as well. And so we are advancing those conversations and bringing to them our ideas, our solutions, as well as informing them on their 
programs. And so we developed quite a positive working relationship, both with the public service and with the ministries are able to have sort of uh, real dialogue about what their program's design should look like, what are the implications at a local level. Obviously, we don't always see eye to eye, but our job at FCM is to advance the the interests and perspective and ensure that the federal decision-making is informed by a, a local lens. Of course, our strength and our biggest asset is our members. And so the mayors and city councillors across the country obviously have relationships with their members of parliament. They have relationships with folks federally as well. And they are constantly engaged in our advocacy work using the sort of policy support and, and advocacy support that we can offer them to also be driving these conversations on their behalf, but on behalf of communities across the country. Within that, the, the media matters a lot. So we do a lot of media relations work. We do a lot of public relations work and we convene and having the opportunity to convene either regionally or nationally to really advance best thinking, but also raise the profile on various issues is important. In addition to raising the profile of various policy issues, FCM routinely faces the challenge of aligning federal and municipal priorities. One of the biggest challenges to climate in particular is alignment, you know, driving the alignment between what the national objectives are and what that means and requires and necessitates then at a local climate level. And similarly, there are often solutions that are being driven at a local climate level that need to be um, considered as part of the objective setting and priority setting at a national level. And oftentimes, despite, I would say, positive intentions on any side of the equation, at that kind of alignment on something that is as complex as uh, advancing climate um, goals, is, it requires dedication and work. It's very easy for this work to become siloed. It's very easy to sort of set goals that are, are not quite congruent or as enabling as they could be for local climate action. And so we're consistently trying to build those bridges to have those conversations. And, you know, part of the strategy uh, there is to really say we need municipalities and local government need to be involved in the conversation at a foundational level, at a ground level, not um, as a, you know, after the fact, after a federal program's been designed um, for review. So that the best thinking and the considerations and the local realities can be duly considered uh, in the design because it, it really is a missed opportunity if we're not as aligned as possible, given the, the scale of action that is, is promised and that is happening um, across the country. So that's a big one, I would say, in terms of the challenges that we collectively as a country need to continue to do better on. Resourcing is always a big challenge, particularly for local governments who have really constrained revenue tools. And you look at something like take adaptation to climate change, you know, we're seeing more frequent climate-related disasters across the country. And the costs associated to adapting infrastructure are massive. You know, no one government alone can bear it. Certainly local government can, and I don't think even governments alone can bear it. The constrained resources and revenue tools that Carol mentioned stem from the fact that most municipal funding in Canada comes from property taxes. This means that when a municipality like Hamilton, for example, wants to invest in a major project, like a new transit line, funding often must come partly or fully from provincial and federal governments. This is where the work of groups like FCM fits in because they're able to host conversations, 
to ensure that federal policies and programs align with goals at a municipal level. Ensuring that we're able to bring folks together for the kinds of conversations that advance progress as opposed to driving divisiveness is key. And municipal governments are, are not only essential because of the, the role that we play, but are such useful actors in these national conversations because we're nonpartisan, because we're able to have these kinds of hard conversations now through FCM as a sector that help drive progress. And so we still have more work to do to get better and better at that and to be able to drive that. But I really think that's an asset of local government that we need to further leverage as a country. Although FCM is nonpartisan, they work with ministers and elected representatives at a federal level who sit within political parties. This means that a shift in government can change policy priorities substantially. To combat this instability, FCM focuses on advocacy for long-term and sustained projects. Changes in federal policy have huge impacts on our, our work, and obviously municipalities uh, need to align and understand what the government's climate policies are. But what doesn't change is the needs on the ground. And what doesn't change is the reality for municipalities on the ground. And so while we need to align where we can to government, uh, federal government's climate policies, we also need to continue to drive support behind what we know to be the priorities um, for local climate action. And so uh, we were pleased to see the government set ambitious targets in this space and municipalities are are really ready to play a key role in getting Canada's NDC targets of 40 to 45% GHG reductions by 2030. And there's a lot of alignment behind a goal of net zero by 2050, if not sooner. And so part of our response right now is both to keep the pressure on from an ambition perspective, but also to really help to the point of alignment, to the point of actually creating now local pathways to these targets is to help drive home the point that to get to net zero, municipalities are our key partners. And that means we're going to require funding. That means it requires support. And to have those conversations that are helping share the best practices that are happening in communities across the country and in cities with the federal government and try to create pathways to the ability to scale those nationally. I've been a part of several um, uh, COP conferences and those conversations are important and the goal setting is important. But I, I think especially after this last one, you know, you heard a chorus of voices of which local governments were one saying, and now we need action. We need to actually do the tangible things that are going to create these pathways to these goals. One important aspect of the pathway to these goals is clear communication through the media, which acts as an important bridge between policymakers and the public, especially at major international conferences like COP26, which took place in 2021 in Glasgow. So there's all the things that we know about a COP sort of at a global scale and then the utility of setting the objectives cohesively as possible at that scale. But that also takes on a pretty ethereal, <laughs> pretty ethereal nature um, to it all. So, I mean, from an advocacy perspective, one of the most useful things about a summit like COP is that it drives eyeballs onto the issue, right? That for a period of time, the media cycle is talking about climate, you know, that federal decision makers, even just the public is more attuned to this kind of this discussion. And so it's a real moment of time with the profile being high to, to try to, to again, make progress and push the needle on related policy issues. 
it also like itself, we, we were sent a delegation, which, which I was part of to the summit and were able to have conversations there with our own government. We were in direct dialogue with the ministers there and um, with our climate change ambassador and with stakeholders who are doing important work in this space in the Canadian context, you know, and it's funny, I, I was sort of contemplating you often hear the sort of reflection of, oh, everybody traveling to Glasgow, you know, uh, it doesn't send the right message for a climate conference. But at the same time, I can honestly tell you, we got done in one week on the ground there by way of conversation. It would have taken us half a year or two to, to advance a series of conversations like that in the Canadian context. And so it feels a little bit silly to go and travel somewhere to, to do that. But there is really a, a catalytic force to being on the ground there, to, to having everybody's attention on the issue in a context where people are looking to talk about out outcomes to be able to, to do that. And again, it creates all those kinds of profiles file opportunities for the issue as well in the public narratives through the media. Currently, FCM is collaborating with NGOs and municipalities internationally to learn from best practices and advocate jointly for wider representation at federal and international levels. Although this work is often slow, Carol is hopeful that relationships between federal and municipal governments will continue. I think there is real progress being made and I have to really give some credit where it's deserved to this current federal government for the work that they've done to, to really build the relationship with municipal governments. So we have for the first time ever a working group, uh, a federal municipal working group on housing. You know, we're advancing the intergovernmental conversation and summit in the next month, which sounds so like obviously we should be doing that as a country but it's the first time that's happened. uh you know and so there is progress being made um and we have a long way to go <laughs> from my perspective in terms of where we should be as a country much of this progress has been made during the covid 19 pandemic when fcm shifted operations online and began prioritizing critical initiatives like a rapid housing initiative to support houseless individuals in communities across Canada. Although the pandemic has allowed certain programs to mobilize quickly, it has also emphasized the precarity facing many municipalities. We hate to have to learn a lesson through something as awful as this pandemic has been, but uh, I think it's exposed really how vulnerable our, our federation is. Like it took zero time basically for municipalities to be pushed to the brink of financial crisis because of plummeting revenues in transit and in other operations, which we're so reliant on given that we don't have other sources of revenue. And, you know, our federal government and provincial governments recognized that it's not an option to have cities fail for the national economy, for the services that Canadians need, for the quality of life that we want to provide our citizens. And so I hope that is a lesson we learn and remember and start to think more ambitiously about how we fix. I also think the pandemic laid bare for Canadians the inequity that exists across the country. You know, the reality is we didn't all experience the pandemic the same way. And for our most vulnerable or for um, marginalized communities, for racialized Canadians, for frontline workers, the pandemic looked a lot different than it did for other parts of our other segments of our population. And I think it really laid bare the challenges from an equity perspective that we have to overcome. It's certainly forced a reflection at a local government level. And uh, I, I think and hope that it's done the same. 
um, across governments and that we're able to, again, more ambitiously take on the work that's required to produce a, and come, emerge from this pandemic a more equitable country than we were ahead of time. It's time for a recap. In this episode, we discussed policymaking with a focus on climate change. We spoke with Catherine McKenna about climate policy at a federal level and the challenge of designing policies to effectively reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We also spoke with Carol Saab from FCM about municipal climate priorities and the importance of intergovernmental communication in policymaking. Join us next week for episode 8 of this series, where we will be talking about organizational change at McMaster University, with a focus on equity, diversity, and inclusion. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Art of Change. For more information about this podcast or The Art of Change course, please visit community.mcmaster.ca.